This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108. Good morning. Well, those quickest to condemn the recent burkini ban in France were Western feminists who claimed it was a woman's right to choose what to wear. But why would any free woman choose to wear clothing so she could not feel the sun or the sea breeze on any part of her skin? Not to mention the kneecap when you can't even breathe or eat properly or the burqa which covers the eyes. Surely these all enveloping veils are nothing other than a tool of female oppression that should not be indulged in liberal democracies. The burqa, feminism and freedom. That's our talking point this morning. And in studio, David Langwarner is Dean of Law, Griffith College, head of the Irish Innocence Project and a regular contributor to The Village magazine. Roger Fazeli is a professor of Islamic studies in Trinity College Dublin and Alva Smith is a feminist activist and former academic and let us know what you think should full veil coverings like the burqa be banned 53106 for 30 cent and a talking point NT for tweets and hashtag NTFM uh, Roger Fazeli you had a lovely article in the Irish Examiner um, you're from Iran yes. and you were telling the story of how your mother loved to swim and how that experience changed post-revolution tell me about that um, well, the the whole history of Iran is is very interesting, and I think it's important in relations to France to kind of do a comparison. So, um, mom, sorry, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to give some details now. Um, so, my mom was was born uh, in mid 1950s, but before that, in 1930s, there was actually a forced unveiling in Iran in the 1930s that. Uh, Reza Shah of Iran during Pahlavi uh, era uh, was very much influenced by Ataturk and by uh, so-called Western uh, women's appearances. And uh, in in process of modernization, he thought that forced unveiling will uh, go towards that. And that had a real backlash. So if you're uh, my grandmother's age, you would have had a period where you were forcefully unveiled. And then during my mom's period, uh, when she was growing up, it was actually, you know, they had the choice. This was uh, during Reza Shah, Muhammad Reza Shah's, uh, uh, so the son of Reza Shah, the second Pahlavi's period. And, uh, you know, my mom, um, as I wrote in, in the article in the Examiner, she loved swimming. We, we are from north of Iran beside the Caspian Sea. So she used to go swimming. She was... Uh, I don't know, it's firecracker, the right word. She she used to be out all the time. But she said, you know, she never felt comfortable swimming in a swimsuit. So she used to go out in a T-shirt and and maybe, you know, tight kind of fitting trousers and and swim. Um, And she had friends in swimming suits. But she said it was interesting to see tourists coming in. And this is Mm -hmm. tourists from Tehran. So other Iranians coming that were so-called, like in, in quotes, westernized. And the local men didn't find that weren't comfortable, <laughs> and uh, so they, you know, they were walking around, and it was obvious that they were noticing these these women. Um, and then 1979, you had the Islamic Revolution, and a couple of years after that, the forced veiling came back. Uh, so again, going back to my grandmother's time, she had period of forced unveiling of kind of choice and then period of forced veiling. Um, and again, we lived beside the Caspian Sea. And as I wrote in the examiner, you know, it, it's it's interesting to see my mom, who is such a strong swimmer because she used to be out in the sea all the time. And then us, we really don't swim very well, myself and my sister, uh, because she couldn't come in 
she she had to have the whole garb so it wasn't just a t-shirt and trousers but you know the manteau the coat um the the head scarf and so on and uh, so she felt she was weighed down by by that material um so if we wanted to go a little bit out she would scream at us going don't go don't go you're going to drown and then you described as well that they put some kind of barrier uh, a cloth into the sea to separate men um, from women some areas so there were some areas that you could go and wear a swimsuit but you could only go as far as the barrier goes um, you couldn't go to the other side and and again because it was then overcrowded those areas were not that clean so we wouldn't be like we, maybe we went once or twice a year to those areas and and really the sea was at our doorstep like if, if there was a storm we could actually feel the, the sea salt <laughs> the the water if we went to the porch so it's 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 ironic not to be able to swim while I grew up just beside the sea um, and what does she do now? How does she feel about it all now, your well, mother? Um, well, she um, so sh- she likes swimming a lot. Um, f- and when we went uh, um, to Nice, actually, this, this summer, um, she wore, for mainly health reasons, actually, she wore a T-shirt over her swimsuit. Uh, but we had a long conversation about it recently. Um, and she said, you know, it depends where she goes swimming. So if she goes swimming in a place where she feels kind of the male gaze, uh, she doesn't <laughs> feel comfortable. But if she feels like in Nice, she said it, it really was mainly for uh, she, she felt more comfortable with the with the T-shirt over her swimsuit. And but also the sun are you was a factor. Annoyed on her behalf that this thing that she loved to do was restricted and her happiness to do it taken away because of this obsession about what um, she wore. To be honest, I don't have to be annoyed on her behalf. Yeah. She's such a strong woman. She's <laughs> annoyed, she annoyed all by herself. Okay, yeah. right. She has, uh, so my, I'm talking on her behalf, but my yeah. mom, we came to Ireland because she came to do a PhD in UCD in horticulture. Mm-hmm. And she was always, uh, you know, I have all these stories of her being the only um, <laughs> female, she was the female lecturer in all male classes because there was a period after the revolution where horticulture became only a male domain but they didn't have enough lectures so there is very paradoxical all of these kind of segregation and gender quotas and and all of this you know it's not black and white but yeah so alva smith you know all this control of what women are wearing and restricting what they're doing and the symbol of this is the veil in its various forms, be it the burqa, which covers the mouth, but not the eyes, I think. The uh, niqab covers the eyes mm-hmm. and the hijab, which is the headscarf, which would yeah. be the most and commonly worn thing. I think there are different varieties you know, of, of headscarf as and, well. And we've seen Western secularized women defend these veils saying, look, it can be empowering for a woman to choose what to wear. And if she wants to wear these things, she should be allowed to. But how can it be a real choice? But you see, I think it's not ever about saying I defend a particular form of clothing. It is more about saying, in fact, the very point that Roger made about her mother, I defend a woman's right to make up her own mind about the kind of clothes that she wears. Now, um, and and certainly that, that whole point about women's agency is really important. And it's very, very important in this particular case that we're talking about that is the banning of the burkini on the 2030 French beaches because there there was absolutely no question of any woman having any choice in that regard. 
regard to wear or not to wear, number one. And number two, I think that, Roger, you also demonstrate very well in your article how contradictory this is. This is the veiling, the unveiling, um, the forcing women to wear, the forcing women not to wear. And in fact, in France, we have actually seen that happening. Uh, we have we saw a woman who was forced to undress, so to speak, on the beach. And I mean, I think any state in which that happens has lost the run of its understanding of freedom and freedom of expression. And I think there was a consensus that that was crazy. But France has also banned the wearing of the burqa in public. And and you had, um, you had, uh, for instance, Caroline Spellman, who was a Conservative minister um, in the UK at the time, and she was saying, well, this is crazy because the burqa can be empowering. Now, would you not agree that... Why would any woman choose to wear a burqa? Well, uh, I think that we have to put... We always have to look at these situations and clothing for women in particular in context. Um, it may very well but be... But it's a context of female well, oppression. Yeah, well, yes, there is. But there is a context of free, you know, female oppression right across the world. It do- doesn't just happen in societies and cultures where women are veiled. It happens in other kinds of ways in our own culture and, and elsewhere. And let's not forget, for example, I remember the days of segregated bathing in this country. The 40 foot was uh, an environment that, in in fact, feminists invaded to make the point that we were opposed to segregation. I also remember very well being, you know, in in hoots of laughter on beaches off down in County Clare and elsewhere in the summer when we would see far up the beach a bunch of nuns. I'm not terribly sure. Is it a bevy of nuns actually going for a swim dressed in extremely modest clothing, which probably would be considered OK now on a beach in France, so to speak. Um, so, you know, I, I I, don't think that we, I believe very strongly in a woman's right to make a decision, but we have for on her own behalf. But we also have to look at the degree to which women are free to make choices. And very often women make a choice to maintain the degree of freedom that they have or the degree of well-being that they have in their lives or the degree of security and safety that they have in their lives and they comply with an instruction to be veiled or or not as the case may be in order to ensure that they don't run into worse problems. But can you not see that that is exactly them complying with the situation whereby they wouldn't be allowed to well, function without this. First of all, it is, it, it is in fact about something different there. It's about it's about security. It's about safety. It's about safety of the person uh, in the first instance. And in the second instance, I think that we've seen that women being told what to do one way or another, and certainly by a state, is always patriarchal. Telling women to dress, telling women to undress, telling women to behave in particular ways in that regard, that is always oppressive. Ha, uh, David, I know you're dying to give in one more second. <laughs> I, I just want very, to push I mean, Alv on this one. How does that? Area. How does that fit then? How does it? How does arguing that a woman should be free to choose to wear this in order to protect her security fit with something, say, like slut walks? 
where the whole point of that is saying, you know, we should be allowed to wear what we want without being judged. Well, in fact, it's exactly the same point. It is about saying that we shouldn't be judging. And what the French state has done, or at least the mayors of these towns, because in fact, the French state has not upheld, has not upheld the the right of of French little, little mayors in little towns and villages all over the beaches of France to actually give these kinds of instructions and orders to to women. David Langwallner. Well, I mean, there's a larger context to all of this. If we look at, for example, France, France has in stages uh, criminalised the wearing of religious garments, the burqa and the hijab. I mean, they started off um, banning it in, in schools and hospitals, and then they moved to banning it in all public places. They were challenged before the European Court of Human Rights uh, only a year ago in a case called SOS at this point. And France's criminalisation of the wearing of the burqa and the other garment that uh, covers the woman, except you can see her eyes, was upheld by the European Court of Human Rights despite objections from Amnesty International and despite objections from other human rights bodies. And the logic of the European Court of Human Rights was that, in effect, that France uh, had a right within the structure of the margin of appreciation, which is deferring to member states, to foster values of secularism, uh, tolerance, and for people to live together. Um, Now, that's France's position as a secular state. And their position is that these garments worn are instruments of... um, degradation of women, the contrary to secular values, and put other people ill at ease. And because you're in France, uh, you do as we tell you to do. I don't think one can construe that narrowly as patriarchal. It is the French state's position, and it's it's neither patriarchal nor not. It is a consequence of the French's attitude towards secularism. And you see modulated in Isaturk state in Turkey a similar type of Mm. attitude. Now, the question becomes, if we accept that that's what France has done, is it correct? Now, Amnesty International and various human rights organizations objected to all of this. But uh, uh, the impetus behind it, and now we have to tread very gingerly, but the impetus behind it is a sense, and I'm not condoning this, but a sense that the wearing of these garments is in some measure connected to fostering religious fundamentalism and religious extremism. And from a French secular state point of view, they don't want that to happen. But then, of course, I mean, if that is the case, the French's overt hostility towards the wearing of these symbols may be in some sense connected to the alienation the Islamic community in France feel, which may have, and again, one is policing this very gingerly, but may have ultimately led to some of the, if you call them terrorist actions or acts of sabotage against the French state. So I think France has gone too far. But I'm shamelessly going to say this. I still think that there, the question of a woman's choice in all of this is, is it an enforced choice? Is it a real choice? Is it an authentic choice? Or is it a choice culturally imposed upon the woman? Uh, there is nothing in the Quran, as I understand it intrinsically, it's later texts about the wearing of these garments. And certainly from a teacher's point of view, uh, in a classroom situation, uh, I do think a burqa in itself creates difficulties. Difficulty number one, the eyes are the windows of the soul. If I can't look into your eyes, how can I teach you properly, for example, from anyone's point of view? And difficulty number two, and again, there are 
different fissures of uh, disagreement about this, but there is the sense of other women, not all women, that they are uncomfortable with someone wearing a burqa in the classroom. And feminists of different hues and types disagree about whether it's an authentic choice or whether it's an instrument of a degradation well, of women. So it's a very I, complex actually, issue. Uh, Roja, you know, you see, the way I see it is, you know, ISA, the Taliban, or ISIS, pardon me, the <laughs> Taliban in Afghanistan, Iran after the revolution, they're doing it now in Syria and Iraq. You know, the first thing the fundamentalists do is veil the women. That's what they do. So... Is it not almost patronising then to walk around in a liberal democracy and say, oh, it's a woman's right to choose? Is that not insulting to all those women who will be beaten or burned or killed if they don't wear it in a different cultural context? No, and exactly because it's a different cultural context and it's different. It's not only cultural, but political context. So you're talking about secular democracies where you have choice within uh, places like France and um, in Western Europe. Um, I um, So I think you have to take context into consideration. Um, there is a lot of conflation as well of different um, um, words here as yeah. well, yes. because we are, ta- we are talking about the burqa. So burqa, the word burqa uh, in Arabic Persian, um, it's something that, that actually predates Islam. And it wasn't just covering for, you know, it was just co- like a, a kind of covering, not just necessarily for women. And when you talk about the, the burqa, uh, now I think everyone thinks about the covering of the face, but really burqa, um, it, it's it's what uh, the Pashtun women in Afghanistan and Pakistan wear. That kind of you know, it's it's the blue uh, yeah. covering from the head burqa to covers toe the eyes, and the niqab allows the eyes yeah. to be covered. But, but it's, covers it the doesn't rest of cover the face. it fully either. Like there is yeah. a muslin. I, I don't. Yeah. I, I, I personally, so personally, we, I, we go yeah. down the scale <laughs> to the jilbab and the headscarf, and yeah. I see. I really don't understand the French's attitude to the wearing of a headscarf or a jilbab which is the long flowing well, Arabian garment. I mean, in fact, um, the hijab seems to me, I mean, it is simply the wearing of a scarf around the, the head and there are different styles and different words even and for that. It's not even necessarily... But, but, but that sorry, is, sorry, but that's not banned actually in all public spaces in France. That is... Bu- banned in schools. And Nicolas Sarkozy, who has recently announced that he is running for uh, president, has actually threatened or promised, depending on your point of view, that he is going to extend the ban against the hijab in schools. He's going to extend it to universities and that he is going to restrict social welfare payments to women who persist in wearing the burqa or the, the niqab. Now, that is, I think, a very good example, as David was saying, of France going much too far. And I think but I think the key question for us there, Sarah, is, you know, why are why are women being targeted? Why are women being punished? Why are women carrying this terrible burden of trauma and fear that does exist in France? And the point is that women are consistently and regularly throughout history required to carry these burdens and to become emblems of a resistance or liberation or um, uh, some form of, of of sacrificial punishment and so on and because so forth. Because the veil is a punishment. The veil is saying you must be modest. No, not you necessarily. Know. Not, mm-hmm. And again, it goes back to context. And as I said, it's not black and white, even within the context. So after the Islamic Revolution, all, everything that you were saying about um, about it being emblems after the Islamic Revolution, really the, the, the chador cladded woman uh, became the emblem 
of the Islamic Revolution of Iran. Exactly. It was it was a symbol that when was then kind of globalized in some ways. It 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 went to other so-called Islamic uh, okay. states and so on. Um, but but that doesn't mean that everyone wearing it is oppressed because as as I said, you know, you you take my grandmother who doesn't know it's part of her cultural identity and I think that cultural identity is also important um to to take into account because without it well, she can't go outside the house and if you can't go outside the house are you <laughs> But that's the whole thing, Rose, that you can't go outside the house unless you wear it. No, no, no. She Surely. can't go if she doesn't wear it. There is a difference because she's yeah. so used to wearing it. So if you force her to take off her scarf, she'll be forced back into the private. Well, and that has happened. David. I, I don't want to be incendiary, but... Oh, I go mean, on. Right. Hold on for a second. If, you take, the, if you take the French, <laughs> one of, I think, historically their hostility towards some of these garments was in the Algerian war. Women were used as suicide bombers, be wearing the burqa, concealing the explosives. I mean, that's just historical fact. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't think one can avoid the issue that whether it's a woman's issue exclusively, which I don't think it is, though I accept all the points that women are lumbered with it and targeted with it, that there's an overarching political dimension which people like, for example, the late great Christopher Hitchens had about the radicalization of Islam and whether Islam is a religion of evil, as Hitchens contended. I'm, again, choosing my comments rather gingerly, not as I contend, but as he contended, and I think as Richard Dawkins contended, contends, and from both their perspectives and points of view, I think the 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 radicalization of Islam is an intrinsically bad idea. Now, how and to what extent this is wrapped up in the wearing of religious symbols like the burqa is a very thorny issue. It's even more complicated because the European Court of Human Rights hasn't just addressed Islamic garments. They've also addressed the crucifix. Mm. And in many circumstances, the European Court of Human Rights has upheld British bans on crucifixes and only allowed for a crucifix with an air hostess who wore it discreetly under, under her blouse. And at this stage, I think we've gone to political correctness, gone mad the other way. In the sense that if someone wants to go to a beach wearing a swimsuit, they might be covering up their psoriasis. They might be going into cold water. uh, They might be covered up for all sorts of reasons. Why should we really care if that's their private choice? A couple of texts before I go to a break. Conversing with someone in a burqa and not being able to see the facial expressions on anybody's face is not good for conversation. I think Tom says, of course, the burqa should be banned. It is ridiculous that a person can be covered head to toe in this era of terrorism. That's the security issue. It is also a repressive tool for women. And someone else says, yes, they should be banned like all forms of domination. If you walk around Muslim countries in a bikini, you'd be flogged. So they should obey our codes. That's good old cultural relativism there. Look, I have to take a quick break and when we come back we'll be talking to Lara Marlowe in France about the popularity or not of the ban. <laughs> Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108. Good morning and welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about burqas this morning. In studio, David Langwall, Dean of Law, Griffith College, head of the Irish Innocence Project and a regular contributor to The Village magazine. Roja Fazeli is a professor of Islamic studies in Trinity College Dublin and Alva Smith is a feminist activist and former academic. Uh, 531064, your text for 30 cent. Uh, Marianne says, Sarah, the burqa states that it's the men have the problem with sex boundaries. They are unable to control themselves. They blame women the temptress. Uh, Roja might be able to flesh that 
that out a bit more for us. <laughs> Patricia in Cork says, back in the late 60s in London at the time of the women's lib movement, my friend was invited to a party at the Savoy Hotel in London. The dress code was no trousers or palazzo pants for women allowed at the Savoy. My friend had made a fab pair of full length calottes to wear and protested to the Savoy, eventually in their wisdom. And as it was a private party, they agreed to allow her in wearing them. Well, my mother recalled last night when she came home from her nursing job to County Cavan in the 50s in her first ever pair of trousers. Her mother met her at the door and said, had she brought a skirt with her because the trousers might we have We weren't allowed to wear trousers into the library in UCD when I was a student. It and was when forbidden. was that? Oh, please, Sarah. Oh, sorry. We're talking about the 1960s, <laughs> but you were not allowed to wear trousers as well, a woman. I was remembering, and I can remember it all so clearly, when um, I was allowed to buy my first pair of jeans. Oh. And that was in the 80s. And, that was, and I remember going into school with my I mean, jeans and my friends were, wow, one Sarah got family, jeans. One of the great feminist role models was Catherine Hepburn. Yeah, oh, that's was right. Catherine yes, Hepburn right, who started the fashion yes. of wearing trousers yes, yes. in the 1930s to be and met with all movies. sorts of hysterical <laughs> objections. Well, Lara Marlowe is on the line now from France. Good morning, Lara. Uh, good morning, Sarah. Um, are you of that generation when you can remember being allowed to wear trousers? Uh, no, what I remember is having to kneel on the floor in a, in a small school in California to see if my skirt touched the ground or not, because if it was shorter, if it was too short, I'd be sent home. And that was in California, my God. Uh, yes, yes, yes. So it was, so in yeah, women's school. Yeah, so women's clothes, yeah, this is the point, have always been um, the touchstone. Lara, just on the, uh, the burkini ban, was there much popular support um, in France for it. I know it was greeted with outrage um, around Mm -hmm. the world, but what was the view within France itself, particularly in the light of the recent terrorist attacks? There was a poll published on the eve of the Council of State uh, ruling which overturned uh, 32 burkini bans in, in French towns. And this poll by IFOP for Le Figaro showed that 64% of the French were opposed to burkinis on beaches. So you have nearly a two-thirds majority of the French against it. There were 7% uh, who approved of burkinis on beaches, which is almost exactly what um, the, the percentage of Muslims in France is. Uh, and then the other, less than a third, who just didn't care, who said it was indifferent to them. So, yes, you had a majority of French people who were against burkinis on beaches. And, you know, we've been hearing a lot about the French philosophy of laicite. I hope I'm pronouncing that even vaguely correctly. Laicite. <laughs> Thank you very much. And it reminded me a little bit of, say, Ataturk you know, in Turkey, um, you know, the enforced secularisation because religion was seen to be so potent. Um, And backward. Yeah, and is is, so is that in general still a popular uh, philosophy? Oh, very much so. I mean, on on the subject of laicite, uh, sorry, of um, forced secularisation, I was thinking of this when Rota was talking about her grandmother, you know, being forced to disrobe and then re-robe and so on and so forth. In Turkey, Ataturk, and then in Iran, the Shah, they tried to um, force people to abandon their cultural and religious beliefs, and it doesn't work. It always comes back. You see, it's back today in Turkey with the AKP in power, uh, and, and it came back to Iran in the revolution. In France, 
yes, laïcité is, is, is a fundament of the modern French Republic. It has been for over 100 years since the 1905 uh, law on separation of church and state. Arguably, it has been since uh, the revolution in 1789, uh, which was revolution was against the church as well as the monarchy. Um, so it is very, very deeply ingrained. Uh, some French politicians, especially Prime Minister Manuel Valls, talk about it in every speech. Uh, it's, it's liberté, fraternité, égalité et laïcité. I mean, it is, it is really right up there with the, the, the top concerns. And the, the, that's why they feel so threatened by Muslims and by visible signs uh, of Islam, because they, they're determined to maintain this neutrality, religious, secular neutrality in the public space. And is there evidence of actual radicalization, you know, say in the suburbs where maybe the Algerian immigrants um, live and where, mm-hmm. you know, the, maybe the majority of Muslims live? Is it a genuine threat, radicalization? Oh, well, I think obviously it is. You have to say so, because most of the people, there have been 235 people killed in France in jihadist attacks since January of 2015. And uh, most of the of the men who've committed those attacks, with the exception of a couple, an Iraqi and a Syrian, and a few who had Belgian nationality, were French-born Muslims um, of uh, nor- Arab North African extraction. I mean, there is a huge intellectual debate now in France between uh, two academics, Jules Capel and Olivier Roy, over whether what is happening is the radicalization of Islam or the Islamicization of radicality. Mm. Now, in, in other words, uh, Olivier Roy says that these, these young Muslims who are going off to fight in Syria, had they lived in, say, the 1970s, would have joined Badr Meinhof and the Red Brigades and so on and so forth, so that, that Islam is the only way to express your rejection of the system as it is. So it's, it's the radical, it's the Islamicization of radicality. Uh, Gilles Chappelle <laughs> argues that this is, this is a genuine radicalization of Islam. I, I think they both have a point. I think they're both right. But if you go to the Bondieu or, or many areas in Paris, I know um, a few months ago I was uh, up near the Gare de l'Est, I met a friend in a restaurant up there, and I, I was quite shocked walking down the street at the number of people in Salafist clothing, you know, the men with the, the sort of short, uh, the, 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 the camis thing that, you know, and the, and the yeah. trousers above their ankles and the, the beards and the, the prayer bumps on their foreheads and then women in, in um, jilbabs or whatever, you know, completely covered head to toe. Um, you do see quite a lot of it, and a lot of French people are deeply offended by it. And what do you think about it? Do you think it should be banned? Because you quoted in your New York Times um, article on this, uh, disapprovingly, I think, Lawrence Rossignol, who declared the burkini the beach version of the burqa and said it has the same logic, hide women's bodies in order to better control them. Uh, I think you're referring to the Irish Times rather than I work for the Irish Times. Oh, right. But, okay. uh, yeah, no, I, uh, I have very strong feelings about it. Um, I think it's madness uh, trying to tell people what to wear. I, I totally agree with what Alva was saying earlier, that uh, men, the state, the patriarchy, should not be allowed to dictate to women what they wear. Um, I mean, you asked earlier, Sarah, why in the heaven's name, you know, would a woman ever wear a burqa mm. and I, uh, or a burkini? And I agree with you. I, I, I love to swim, and, and I, I really, really, really would not want to swim in a burkini. 
But uh, the fact is that many of these women are covering themselves out of genuine faith, religious faith. Uh, in the same, people do a lot of things out of faith that which we find mad. Uh, but we don't stop them doing it. Well, but you um, see, we do. You know, when it comes to other things like female genital mutilation, we do say, no, yeah, we don't but, care but, if that's but, your faith. But, that's but mad. Genital mutilation is, is, is mutilation, whereas, you know, wearing, wearing a, a headscarf or, or a, a veil does not, um, does not harm you physically in, in, la- in a lasting manner. But how can wearing a burqa not harm you, cutting you off? from society so that you can't walk properly you can't eat properly if you've got if your eyes are covered you can't even see uh, wait, properly wait, wait, wait. I, so I, I must say I draw the line on, on covering the face um, I, right. I would agree with that for yes. reasons of safety yeah. and, and just you know however it's not clear but, that sorry Alva Smith wants to yeah, get no, in sorry Lara it's equally yeah. not clear I mean to, to follow on Lara's line there that banning women from wearing anything at all actually helps anyone at yeah. all and it certainly does absolutely nothing to address the very serious and profound and long-lasting, long, deep-rooted problems that France has with its Muslim and particularly its North African communities, yeah. which do indeed go back to its own colonial and history. David, well, David Lang. There was an internal contradiction in what uh, uh, Miss Marlowe said, where she talked about the garments as if they were solely women and then referenced being in a French street or a French restaurant seeing men wearing Islamic garb and Islam, as I picked it up. And I think one can get a little bit but, fetishistic. But the men are banned, David. The, nobody, nobody tries to prevent the men wearing this clothing. Are turbans not banned in the schools? Well, they're... they're yeah. d- Distinctions with turbans because of, certainly they're not banned in Britain because of the Sikh, the, the hair covering being intrinsic to Sikh religion. Mind you, the Garda Commission in Ireland banned a Sikh reservist But I think they are banned turbaned. in France. Yeah. yeah. It just, but, but, yeah, but just, nobody wore turbans here anyway. So <laughs> there's a more important point. Charles Taylor, who's a, a world famous intellectual, wrote a fabulous book a number of years ago called A Secular Age. Now, I think we've got to face the fact that we are no longer living in the same Enlightenment secular age we were a number of years ago. And we're entering an age where there is a militancy of religious belief system. And let's not get just het up with Islam about this. You have people over in America knocking off abortion doctors um, uh, and you have the Westboro Baptist Church uh, demonstrating about uh, outside of servicemen's funeral. There's been a radicalization of religion and a resurgence of religion worldwide that contradicts the whole Enlightenment idea, which, of course, France, Voltaire, the Constitution of 1793, France is the architect of the of Enlightenment secular values in some respects. So I think we have to move away slightly. Though I am conscious of all of the sensitivities in relation to women, but we have to address fundamentally the linkages, if any, between the wearing of garments, whether they be uh, or crucifixes, and religious extremism. One point about Ireland, nobody's addressed. Actually, I let Lara back in. Yeah. Yes, Lara. Uh, you know, Andre Malraux said that the 21st century would be the century of religion, and yes, there is a radicalization of religion. But what David is saying, you you're going to somehow slow or reverse this radicalization by stopping women from wearing veils. It's ridiculous. No, I didn't say you, that. Oh, okay. Well, that was the implication. No, it but wasn't. But if you do that, if, uh, if you repress their practice of their religion, you only make them more radical. That is what is happening in France. Yes. I'm convinced that if, there had, if you hadn't had the 2004 law against the headscarf in schools, for example, 
you wouldn't mm-hmm. see so many women adopting the veil since. Yes. It's become a sort of mark of honor, of pride, of defiance uh, to wear it because they've been stigmatized. They've been, they, they, they've been set apart as Muslims. And exactly uh, the same thing in the UK. Uh, and I made the point earlier, just very briefly, in the interest of clarity, that France's bans may have been counterproductive in increasing yeah. militancy. And I think there's a level of symmetry between all of us about the burqa as a problem and not other garments. Uh, Roja Fazeli. Um, yeah. yeah, I just wanted to say, and and this whole uh, um, banning, not banning, and so on, and various women's voices in this, Muslim women's voices. Mm. We are talking about it, um, um, and you know, I I hope I'm not. You know, I'm wearing my academic hat yeah. and um, not representative of, of the Muslim women, but um, and you're not veiled. And I'm not veiled. Yeah. No, no. And and that's that's the thing is as well. Like if I was in Iran, I wouldn't want to be veiled. There are voices from within um, that that um, that oppose forced veiling, but still they stand for choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's that's the important distinction to make as well. Um, yeah, but sometimes, Lara, I'll put this to you finally and let you go. I often wonder about, I'll call it the dogma of choice. Now, maybe that's a little bit extreme, but that sometimes by creating a choice, you're actually removing someone else's choice. So a classic case might be euthanasia, where you can say, look, people should have the choice if they have a terminal illness. But that puts terrible pressure on poor granny, who's feeling like a burden to her family. And suddenly the mere existence of that choice actually removes a choice from her. So an argument might be... This is the argument that says that these women are all wearing the headscarf because their brothers and husbands and fathers are forcing them to do it. Yeah. And and by banning the headscarf, we are liberating these women. I'm sorry, I don't buy it. Um, I I think if... If a woman is being forced to wear it by her father, brother, or husband, or whatever, it, she she has to fight that battle. She has to liberate herself. But I, who I, will I support her? Can, but Lara, who supports her in that battle? She can't do that by herself. Well, so who she supports her? Her sisters and mother and and friends and so on and so forth. We we are intervening. We are assuming we're making that assumption, which I'm not sure is correct in a majority of cases to begin with. Um, who are we to sort of say, we know what's best for you and we're going to, to, to make you do it? I, and I, that I, is that that's what the West has always done, including Western feminists. And we have to yeah. always be incredibly careful. I think bans backfire. They produce the opposite sort of result. And fundamentally, this whole brouhaha in France is not really it is not really about women at all. What it is fundamentally about is French, the increasing xenophobia in France, its mm. increasing move to the right, mm. its absolute fear and terror because of the traumatic terrorist Um, attacks it has lived through but also because it has you know fundamentally refused to come to terms with its own part and its own complicity in producing the kind of Mm. world in which these acts occur. Actually I'm going to take a break there now. Lara I'm going to let you go I hope you feel you got your spake in there sufficiently (laughs) and we'll talk again no doubt on this matter so good morning Lara and we'll be back with the rest of our panellists after this break. Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108. 
And welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about the burqa and feminism this morning. David Langwalner is Dean of Law, Griffith College, head of the Irish Innocence Project and a regular contributor to The Village magazine. Roja Fazeli is a professor of Islamic studies in Trinity College, Dublin. And Alva Smith is a feminist activist and former academic. 53106 for 30 cent for your text. Uh, Christina says, I've had six children and I'm middle aged. I would happily wear a burkini on the beach some days. One of my daughters has psoriasis and she doesn't want to expose her skin. She won't go to the beach but maybe if burkinis became trendy other daughters wear next to nothing on the beach no one should tell anyone what to wear now the texture says how can any female question another female's right to wear burqa slash hijab it's the view of the people looking at them that is biased usually through ignorance or fear uh, burqas have been used in suicide missions previously so let's ban them and that's being ironic well so have backpacks in attacks on US and British soil but no one is looking to ban them yeah but they are taken away from you when you go into buildings and stuff fear and ignorance is driving people people's views um, and then perhaps what women of Islam need to do is become radicalised and re-embrace the basic principle of gender equality that seems to be part of Islam and work from there aren't there any Muslim feminists in Ireland who can speak on these issues so just one thing I did actually try during the week to contact um, a uh, a sheikh and get a veiled woman to talk to us but it came to nothing so I did try mm-hmm. but Roja maybe you you know can it be a feminist choice within Islam or how can feminists argue their case within Islam when it comes to being veiled? Um, they, well, again, I can't, I sound like a broken record, but yeah. context is so important here. Context is extremely important. Choice agency is very important as well. Uh, but um, in Iran, for example, um, you have a uh, uh, Islamic feminists and Muslim feminists, they're different. I don't have time to go into oh, definitions, yeah, yeah. Um, but majority of them are women who were veiled before the revolution and then they kept on their veil. And with veil, I mean head scarf. And this is another, you know, as mm-hmm. I said, we are conflating different types of head coverings and coverings and modesty. Um, and it's and we keep going back to the burqa, burqa, burqa. Very, very few Muslim women of of uh, of millions and millions actually wear actual burqa. Yeah, in France, I think it's a couple yeah. of thousand. It's yes. tiny. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And um, so it's 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 making that very very big the burqa. And I don't think it's it's a huge problem. I personally don't agree with the burqa. It's not within Islamic text. It's not a requirement. Even um, very. Um, 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 uh, kind of Muslims, mu- Muslim women who practice, um, uh, majority of them wouldn't wear uh, the, the the burqa, but the, the head covering. Uh, but yeah, there is interpretation, feminist interpretation of Quran that would give you that choice. And so feminist, Muslim feminists would say, yes, you have a choice to wear it and or not wear it. Um, and I give you one one anecdotal uh, example. So after the revolution in Iran, a lot of people didn't want to wear it, uh, but uh, they had to wear it. But also there was a, um, a parad- paradoxical thing that happened. There were families who didn't let their their uh, girl child, their daughters to go to school, to go to universities. But after the forced veiling, they did because they were comfortable 
struggle with with that segregation. Yeah, and on that, there was a proper empirical study done by Oxford University on this um, uh, in Turkey, 25 Muslim countries and in Belgium. And what they said was young, highly educated women stop veiling. But religious women actually took on the veil when they wanted to get involved in education because it was a way of proving their piety as they interacted with the modern world. Um, Alva, yeah, but, what do you want to say? But the interesting thing is that young, highly educated women in France and in the UK and possibly in Germany are now beginning to actually wear the headscarf, for example, young Muslim women, precisely because they have been told not to. And they see that as an attack on their uh, cultural and ethnic right. and well, religious I want to put identity. Point, you know. I, you no, know, but this idea of that. Well, what my, yeah. my point is that bans of this kind are inflammatory. Therefore, I see them as a real threat and as a real danger, not only to the safety of women, but to the to the safety of a society as a whole. And they are done, but which have nothing to do with nothing to do with. But in this particular, we're talking about the context. We're looking at the politics of the situation. This was a political gesture, and it was made specifically for political reasons with elections coming up in very right-wing oh, France oh, in David, the near future. David, I've, I've had programmes about rape and victim blaming. Yeah. And if I say, you know what, girls, if you're going to go out dressed like that, you're inviting well, trouble. I, I, I was about, and I'll have the I, head taken I was about off. to tell the story, which is particularly apt of, I dated an Iranian feminist when Good I was much you. younger. <laughs> and she wore the jilbab. And I, much less Iranian politically... Iranian feminists wouldn't wear jilbab. Uh, well, well, whatever, <laughs> the, the flowing garment. <laughs> And, and um, I politically incorrectly pointed this out and she made precisely that point. Uh, in other words, there are women going around the place dressed in absolutely nothing. I mean, is that showing the proper level of appropriate levels of respect from her point of view? This is an authentic expression of my of my femininity and it's my choice as well. The other thing is, I do think that we need to break this down. Headscarves bans mad. Uh, burqa bans, we can have a legitimate argument uh, about yes, that. Yeah, uh, uh, that's absolutely true. That the last thing I want to say, conscious of time yeah. flowing, is the reason we're going to do nothing in this country is because of Christian fundamentalism and Christian symbol wearing and the role of the, uh, of the Catholic Church, which means we're the opposite extreme from France. Somewhere in the middle is the right answer. Right. OK, well, that's probably a good final word. And the producer will be pleased that you did it right on time, David. So that's it for this morning. Many thanks to my guests. Paul Marnock was in sound. Ronan Brannock Research. Joe Coffey produced. Bobby Kerr is up next. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this Newstalk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.